This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Paul Fischer with the Conversion Science Network podcast here at our uh, Barcelona Cognition Brain Technology Summer School 2018 together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott and um, we have Lars Mukli here and, and Lars welcome to the podcast. Um, so Lars you, you spoke about internal models and counterfactual cognition predicting our environment and uh, as the title might suggest uh, prediction was very much at the center of your of your presentation so so why do you believe that prediction gives us sort of this this strategic lever to understand how the brain works I think a few years back I kind of tried to conceptualize everything I know so far from uh, visual processing um, let's say 10 years ago and I, I thought that uh, at some point we um, have a generally accepted narrative of a visual hierarchy that goes of uh, increasing features represented, uh, for example, in the visual system. Um, and in this story, I felt that there is a particular capability missing. Um, if, let's say, we are driving around in a car and um, we... Uh, this would be for our brains in this conventional narrative kind of an overdrive there's lots of varying stimuli there's lots of um, signal that needs to be attended to that are competing for attention um, it is integrated bind, bound together these complex features and yet it is possible to effortless navigate around and have thoughts about your holiday, about your next research grant, about complicated um, conceptual theories and thoughts. And so I thought if we use the kind of narrative that is coming out of describing early visual cortex and then higher stages of visual cortex as the template of how the entire brain works, we have a very busy and buzzing uh, neuronal system which is combining features um, and we run out of brain space before we have an explanation of those really exciting things that we are doing. So I thought something isn't quite right and um, I think predictive processing framework brings to the table a narrative that is refreshingly mm, different by saying, well, you know, it makes sense if you do something like driving in the car, um, where lots of those features, even though they are quite complex, and even though they have spatial temporal um, dynamics that from a bottom-up system is complicated, um, you can see that a hierarchical system is well-equipped to explain that away, to, to say, to focus on only the surprising light that comes up and signals that you're out of a petrol and ignore the commercials that are running by and these kind of things because lots of that can be explained away by different um, 
precision explanations. You, you, you're expecting something to fly by. You're expecting commercials to try to ac attract your attention and you ignore it. So, so I think there's a lot that can be brought to the table by this top down, by this global narrative. Mm -hmm. So it would mean that feels also a bit an idea of how do you, let's say, optimize information processing by actually just looking at your errors. So that means the stuff you didn't expect. Yes. As opposed to stuff you expect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, but was there also something in the in the, the the data that you were working with at the time that was suggestive of moving in that direction? Was there sort of a parsimony in the data that you felt needed to be explained in those terms? Yeah. Um, so ten years ago, we we have worked in principle with very simple stimuli that um, looked at um, apparent motion, which is from one perspective, maybe the most simple um, visual illusion you can think of because it only requires two dots that blink in a certain spatial temporal pattern so that your visual system combines them to the illusion of a continuous move movement from this one location to the other location. And um, if, you, if it's long distance, um, it, it may appear as one jump, but it's still one object. And you, commercials work with this. Um, you, you see this all around. It's you know everywhere. But it's a very simple illusion that we looked at and that we used to show how the visual system integrates this information and feeds back to early visual cortex. So that was um, an early finding. Um, and let's say I started... Um, with a surprising finding of some feedback in the intermediate space between these dots, which have which induce their pair motion, but um, which is then filled by by some activity, and we try to make sense of this activity. So it was actually driven by an experimental result from fMRI that this intermediate space was filled with activity. That we then thought of how to explain that, which then brought us to several competing hypotheses. One was um, uh, related to consciousness and uh, representing of an item. And the other was more related to predictive coding framework, which we then followed up with several experiments, which we then came up with a sampling strategy to test predictive processing, which um, led us to the conclusion that there is a, a predictive model that is projected down to early visual cortex. And and that's how we started. And the, the story I told you about, you know, 10 or um, 12 years ago or so, was when I then left Frankfurt and went to Glasgow. Uh, and I was thinking of new grand ideas that, uh, that I put in um, grand applications. And coming from this very simple stimulus, I wanted to make it um, more realistic, more um, using more realistic complex stimuli and using also more interactive subjects. So we created one extrapolation was including eye movements. Another one was using complex stimuli and looking for predictive processes with these more complex scenes. Yeah, so I'm interested in um, how and why you arrived at the idea of using apparent motion as... The paradigm. I mean, you, as you say, you're, you're motivated 
by this predictive framework and you uh, began by uh, describing some ideas from people like David Mumford and his act active blackboard idea that there is a you know, sort of representation of what you expect to see in the world in higher brain areas. And you also described a study from Hansen et al., which talked about if we're watching snippets from a Hollywood movie, we build up this picture in our heads in the higher areas of the visual pathway of the meaning of the story and so on. And that this feeds back and influences processing in the lower visual areas. So, but, but the task you choose to focus on uh, apparent motion is of course, very well known uh, in psychology from uh, you know centuries back. You know it was uh, the Gestalt psychologists found this and focused on it and really talked about it as a way of thinking about well, without perhaps too much theoretical insight into it, but seeing it such a dynamical process that's happening in the brain, not so much necessarily a hierarchical process though. So it is a bit of a leap to go from. A gestalt process like apparent motion to a hypothesis about hierarchy. Okay. Um, interestingly, I think when we started brain imaging, and that goes back to 1996, um, when I joined Rainer Goebel's lab, apparent motion and other gestalt laws were kind of the first start of how we wanted to look into the human brain to see where these gestalt laws are represented and um, motion was something that we started with uh, actually the second experiment was imagery of motion and we're surprised to see that that worked and activated V5 and um, and why we did these apparent motion experiments one was uh, about bistable apparent motion and it, it, the, the switches between perceiving the motion content and not perceiving the motion content was something that you can follow in, in the activity of V5. Um, but then we, we found something in the data that actually V1 knows something about, gets informed about some of those integration processes. And um, it was with Nico Kriegerskort at that time that we were uh, late at night discussing what could be the kind of feedback the tray the, along a, a trace in, in the apparent motion how that could be informative and um, we came then to David Mumford's um, kind of uh, a seminal papers of the 90s in which he motivated this active blackboard uh, theory uh, not totally um, being explicit whether this active blackboard is a subcortical thalamic structure or primary visual cortex but the idea that these expert areas kind of converge to, um, to, to their best guesses in a scene and scri scribble this on, onto a blackboard to kind of negotiate the scene and the surprises um, within the scene and so on was quite attractive. And we thought, okay, how can we test this? And, um, and I think that started the, the following experiments. And the paramotion is good in the sense that you can have the inducing stimuli far away from a region in the middle where you have the illusion and since the the, the early part of my brain imaging i always use retrotopic mapping um and um the trick that the the spatial uh, separation of components uh, can be done very cleanly in fmi uh, 
maybe better than in some other methods. So in EEG, you, you always have everything uh, together. You have a better uh, temporal resolution, but um, the signal can be can be separated so so well. And in fMRI, one of the advantages you can do individual maps and then get the single signals out of those retrotopic components. And I think it's this tool that um, I wanted to explore and um, use more and more over the years um, up to our most recent finding where we we can see that in more complex scenes this this um, occluded part or uh, retrotopic space can show um, that uh, you have something like a mental mental map or mental hypothesis drawn out um, I think the uh, one of the interesting issues here is, you know, uh, and that came out in the talk, was how much of uh, the kinds of constraints that, that the brain is using to do something like a apparent motion tax are going to be implemented within a level of the hierarchy and how many of them are going to be, you know, higher levels of the hierarchy. So, um, you know, it, I think most of your talk was about how the uh, upper levels might influence the process in the lower levels but you presumably would also recognize that there are some processes mm. happening within V1 itself which are going to do things like uh, gestalt properties or will encourage sort of things like completion. And things. Yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting uh, feature of using a parallel motion that because the uh, a parallel motion, that we, the motion that we trigger is a very fast one and a long distance one. So it's... Um, you know, 12 degrees visual angle, uh, it goes to 60 degrees uh, per second. Um, those are features that we one cannot process. Um, and higher visual areas like V5, um, if it's considered to be higher, but specialized visual exostride areas are, are specialized to process tuning along these. Um, motion energies, high speed, long distances. And so it's a particular good case in which we can look into V1's typical feed-forward features and see the addition of complex features that aren't uh, typical to V1. If you want to say in a different way, V1 has a certain language to speak. Yeah. And... Um, we we kind of test the multilinguality of of V1 because other other areas speak in a different language, and the question is uh, some of the interesting and still not under, uh, totally resolved questions is is um, are these areas translating to V1 so that is V5 translating its prediction and explaining to V1 in a uh, spatial localized way at a very high speed you expect a dot to see here 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 and here and this and this orientation or is it um, more of a kind of a, um, envelope translation to say there's high energy motion in this part of the visual field but your knowledge about the concrete um, incidence orientation and so on will combine to a um, to a better understanding of the situation and that's I, I think the the kind of 
uh, model that I have in my mind. Um, there isn't a full translation. I touched upon this in with mapping the precision of the filling in in complex scenes. There's a line drawings and and but the the precision is around four degrees. V1 has a precision of one degree. So it's more like saying there's a line somewhere around here or there's a motion of that kind of speed somewhere around here. And this is what top-down can um, give us a prediction and combined with the lateral information saying, oh, there was a dot that just disappeared here together with the energy prediction up there. I can now make a very precision, a precise prediction uh, by combining those those two constraints. But be, before we get there, because that that's sort of after a number of experiments, right? Right. And I think that the first question is whether, given the data you have on this apparent motion paradigm, um, whether th this predictive, the predictive mind hypothesis or the active inference hypothesis, however you want to call it is the most parsimonious explanation of the data that you have. Because what you showed in your first experiment is that you have apparent motion. So we have the, the, the two fields are being stimulated in a certain order. So you have this idea there's something moving, right? And now you're going to flash a stimulus in the center area, either synchronized with this apparent motion, right? Or out of, out of sync, out of phase with this apparent motion, uh, where you, you look at the time difference of one frame. Right, so this would be about 15 milliseconds or something like this. Otherwise, so it's, so it's a very slight deviation, right, of the predicted path. And then, what you do observe in your fMRI is that um, eight seconds after stimulation, either uh, congruent or incongruent, you see a slight deflection or deviation of the bolt response in in the area that you've stimulated with this, this uh, predicted or unpredicted stimulus, um, which is slightly higher, the bolt response is slightly higher for the deviant stimulus as compared to the congruent stimulus. Hmm. Right? This is the, the main effect. Yep. And this the deviation, the bolt signal, is of the order of about, what, 8 to 10%, something like this. right? Um, and it's also slightly enhanced in both cases, relative to the baseline response, right? So, so now, why why do you believe that this predictive coding hypothesis interpretation is the most parsimonious explanation of that of the data itself, right? Um, Andy Clark has a wonderful cover picture in uh, his book on predictive processing. I think, or oh, it's called differently. It's uh, surfing. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. And if you if you take the picture, we are in Barcelona. I've seen the beach this morning. It's the the model is a little bit like this. You you have this wave of motion energy, uh, of you know prediction. It, it is translated to something that needs energy in V one, like a prediction, and then you place on this wave a surfer that surfs the waves. And then is well, you know, is efficient and comes through and is detected. That's the dot that's in time, and the surfer that has a little bit of a timing problem uh, won't make this and f f will fall off the wave, and and that's the prediction error, uh, and that makes a small difference. And the surprising if result is that this one frame difference is detectable in both signal, 
And um, my most parsimonious explanation, the way I think, is, yeah, you, you see at this moment the, the mismatch between the prediction and, 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 and the surfer, the, the dot that doesn't quite make it uh, to be within this uh, envelope. Now, as I said earlier, this envelope moves very fast, 60 degrees visual angle. That's faster than any motion detector on V1. Uh, V1 has lots of lateral connections, but I doubt that they have the speed to process this. But I'm not opposed to this explanation. I've had several discussions. People are on both sides saying, well, it could be, you know, there could be a contribution. And I, in the model that I just pictured before, I, I do think there is a contribution of lateral interaction. Given the feed, feedback signal of a certain motion envelope and giving the neighborhood relation of um, the just disappearing dot, gives the high precision of, of this. Oh, I would say... The long-range long range lateral interactions in V1 are iso-orientation, mm -hmm. right? So neurons that like similar features link together over long distances, and that would, of course, be a perfect substrate to exploit to get apparent motion, because mm -hmm. the activity will be very actively guided along neurons with a similar response tuning to move in a certain direction, right? So, so this would give you essentially a kind of entrainment response, right? For to explain the parent motion, mm -hmm. which might be also more in line with actually the Gestalt ideas, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so can for, you for for this for this uh, model just um, that's why I like to use the the image of um, the, the the paper of um, Mock, um, I'm blanking on her name, but mm -hmm. um, who did the apparent motion with the gratings, and um, the filling in is inducing a new feature, which is a new orientation, which is not just neighborhood um, relation, it's a smooth transition. Now, maybe the case can be made that the lateral interaction smoothly goes from one orientation over space to. to um, um, bleeds into uh, other orientation, but it's not such that the uh, feature that's picked up on the apparent motion trace is a just replication of the neighboring feature in orientation. Mm -hmm. So, it, it to me it looks more as a constructed feature. But that would just be a matter, as long as I take enough freedom to fiddle with the topography of the lateral interactions, I could also get this apparent mm -hmm. feature, right? And but but another another answer of course could be you could still say look you see we agree because the predictive model still holds it's just that the substrate is also included already in V1 wiring but for some reason in your view you want to see it like a hierarchical system right and without ascribing a, a big functional role to the, the the local structure of V1 in this case while you also know that that. 97, 98% of the synapses in the V1 volume originate inside V1. Only a tiny fraction comes from outside V1, right? So, so can you do you believe that th this tiny fraction of long-range projections coming out of V2 or out of your thalamus, right, or other cortical areas are sufficient to carry your predictive model? 
So there are two lines of evidence where we really looked at this interaction. One that I presented, one that I didn't present. Um, and the, maybe to add the one that I didn't present, we used an EEG experiment, again with the apparent motion design. And um, we found two components that have energy, um, motion energy components as compared to flicker to flicker. And those components were around 100 milliseconds and around 140 milliseconds after stimulus onset. And um, we then had the question, which one is from retinotopic regions and which one is from V5? And what we found is we applied the apparent motion in the upper visual field and in the lower visual field, which induces an EEG component in the dorsal and in the ventral stream. So they have different orientation. And we subtracted one where we had a power motion in the upper visual field from in the lower visual field and found that the early component um, was subtracted away, meaning um, that the motion sensitive area V5, which in both cases has the same localization, um, is the early one around 100 milliseconds and the later one, the 140, is the upper and the lower of the retrotopic. So the retrotopic component comes 40 milliseconds later. Um, so the other experiment I showed was the TMS experiment at which we stimulate V5 50 milliseconds, 40 milliseconds before the onset of the flicker, which is on the apparent motion trace. And this TMS takes away the predictability effect on the apparent motion trace. So both of those indicators, I think, speak more to a um, communication between V5, which is tuned to process this high um, velocity motion across huge space, um, and the more localized features in V1. And so, therefore, I think it's it's a, it's a good paradigm because different features are processed in different different regions, and and they are naturally optimized for this. And you can see this kind of interaction. Um, but not as an alternative for for your two experiments. I could also argue: look, so your first experiment you show V five leading V one mm -hmm. in this response, right? And um, then I could argue: well, but maybe you need a minimum volume of response that should be detectable with your methods of fMRI. This kind of, given the heavy convergence to V1, you will only get that initial critical response that is detectable at the V5 level and after the V1. So it's more an artifact of your measurement technique than really reflecting the underlying dynamics. Can you exclude that? Um, so it's true that we usually have these block designs, but in the EEG experiment, um, we, we, we measure, you know, these, these um, short, I mean, this 100 milliseconds after onset of the, see the apparent motion energy component as compared to blinking, for example. Um, and also in our experiment where we combine apparent motion with saccades, it's such that it even works after the saccade in the new hemisphere, um, which, if I understand you correctly, you're saying you need repetition over time to build up the V5 um, signal. Um, well, that's just convergence, it's plain convergence. 
that you just have a sufficient drive onto that volume of cells to become really a, a clean signal that you can extract with your method, yeah. as opposed to a more distributed, diffuse signal in V1 that is more difficult to detect in well, this task. <coughs> yeah, I mean, if you like, in if, if you take V1 after the saccade, a blinking dot, so there's the inducer, the last stimulus of the apparent motion, and a blinking dot next to it, the target, those two are always perfect apparent motion. If that would be the only event, if V1 in the new hemisphere would process that on its own, they are as much related to one another. The in-time is as much related as the out-of-time. The only thing that makes these two stimulation conditions different is the, the history that was processed in V5 and in V1 in the other hemisphere. So it's, take, it's bringing this history to this new situation that makes any that just that creates a difference um, it might be true that it needs to build up over time this hypothesis in v5 because a pair motion is a peculiar situation if you have just two dots and you perceive them as a pair motion there's no other way describing that as post diction you need to you have the after the second event only you can understand that it was a motion and every point in between would be integrated at a later time point. So it's like you're reversing the, the, the time frame. We, um, in our experiments, we have always had eight iterations of a pair of motion. So that takes care, the visual system kind of um, um, has time to, to catch up with the delay in stimulation to then run in in time um, if the famous experiment is if you do in a pair motion you take away one stimulus uh, so it's repetitive and then you take a stimulus away you will still continue to see a pair motion because your visual system is now so predictive that it fills in this that it can catch up it needs oh, to do right. post diction of the missing stimulus sure. to to realize so the pair motion is there but the question is do we really see a, a strong contribution to the phenomenon at, at the signal level of something we might want to call a, a predictive model, right? So then also for your second example, um, you could also see where you talk about your TMS experiment and say, look, if I, if, I, if, I, if I zap V5, I can sort of disrupt the error detection signal, at least this is how you would interpret it, right? And then the error detection signal, the deviant trigger signal, ends up roughly at the same magnitude as the the, the congruent stimulus, right? But that's, of course, I could still argue, well, but that's at best a necessary condition of a predictive model, and it doesn't prove in any way that what comes from V5 is a predictive model that is processed into an error at the V1 level. Right? Can you exclude that? Mm. What I'm struggling to find a, a way in which we could prove that um, your distinction how um, so which which aspect are you are you uh, questioning that the, 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 the content of the model so to say v5 speaks to v1 mm -hmm. um, and don't debate right we accept okay yeah. and the, it the content of the message has something to do with the a power motion mm -hmm. and um, 
Are you now saying there could also be a contribution of lateral interaction in V1 that contributes to the to creation of this complex prediction that we test? Right. Well, yeah. I think so. This is this is an alternative explanation that so far you couldn't exclude yet. No, I'm not. Except, okay. Except that you're saying, well, but I have a TMS experiment, and then I'm saying, yeah, but wait. I could still have all this process playing out at the V1 level. We know anatomically V5 projects back to V1. So if I zap v V5, it's not so strange something happens at the V1 level, but it doesn't tell us anything about whether this is a prediction being fed back or just there is anatomical connection between the two areas and signal exchange. So I think Jeff Hawkins uses this kind of explanation of this hierarchical predictive um, memory prediction framework in which it says, you know, you at every level the neuronal micro unit is trying to explain its own activity given the surrounding uh, stimulus history in the context of a message from a higher level um, top-down prediction. So um, and the example he's using is like uh, if you have a, a melody, then the um, the higher up areas in auditory cortex would con would tell you what is expected to continue in this melody, and giving the local information of transients uh, at at this lower level, and giving the envelope context from higher, you create this neurons kind of create what's most likely to to happen next. And so it's it's within this kind of model that I would also and there's actually a, a good model um, that does that for for a pair of motion or for motion behind occluders um, where it does exactly this that the top down is the kind of envelope and the lateral is the additional information that then converges to a precise prediction. So the example here um, being you have a. Um, motion of a certain energy disappearing into uh, behind a uh, uh, occluder and the the way it's modeled is there's a motion energy expected in this area and but you can't be very precise where it is the disappearance of the dot gives an additional constraint and these two information together make a very precise prediction of of the trajectory of the dot mm -hmm. and that's the way I think about it so so okay, I'm not so excluding the lateral interaction the so you're saying then that the, the, the idea of a hierarchical predictive model um, is a functional concept that's not mimicked or in sort of an isotropic way mapped to the anatomical hierarchy because it might be implemented by some because a confluence of, mm. of recurrent projections and local interactions in, in neural circuits. Exactly. This will be your point. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. All clear. Um, because also in that sense, you, you made the, the point, and it also resonates with this, you said, look, the traditional view, and that, that's also where Hawkins, I think, sits, would be rather dogmatic in that sense, right? There's a top-down prediction, and, and, and this comes together at a, a lower level in the hierarchy where it leads to an error, right? There's a real comparison taking place between the state that this lower level area believes is, is correct. It gets a reference, if you want, from a top-down area. And now a comparison happens and I have an error, right? And your data would not really reflect that in such a literal sense, right? 
because you, in, in, in essentially in your what you'll see in your gold signal for the matching the congruent stimulus also leads to a deflection of the signal as does the incongruent stimulus although the deflection is somewhat different right so that means it's not about the error processing apparently so so what do you then think is being processed is being generated in that local v1 circuit if it's not an error uh, as, as the traditional models would would predict well i think this is of course a very good point but it seems like a point about the labels we we add to to those coding differences right so if a prediction is violated and the violation of the prediction um gives a different signal or whether it's a confirmation of a prediction that gives another signal it is the combination of input signal and and expectations that are co combined and um, they can be subtracted which is the prediction of the um, predictive coding proper way or it could be um, multiplicated and resonate and it's very difficult to define the level at which we can resolve that debate because um, so I'm I'm currently not sure how we would resolve this because at the neuronal level so what is the right level of description we have um, um, the microcircuitry within V1 that is a combination of excitatory and inhibitory neurons um, the arrow units that can be um, also a combination of excitatory and inhibitory neurons so it will be very difficult to resolve that um, but the narrative of the predictive processing framework um, is very clear about those units in principle so prediction error matters uh, reduction of prediction error or um, is a currency that might be very useful and um, also in the predictive coding framework you have the the resonating the confirmation signal for a, a predicted signal that keeps an internal model running uh, so you have all those components and I think it's um, um, you know, it's it's going to be. Do you have a suggestion how to resolve that? I mean, or do do you have? Is is there some variance that is not explained, or that would be more parsimonious explained by by an alternative explanation? I'm not so sure. Yes. Okay. F1, temporal population codes. But before we get there, because so so I feel one way. If I, if I would be real, a real cynic and observing your your results, I could say, look, you have been done a fabulous job dismantling the predictive coding framework because the second thing is also if you go back to the traditional idea of Mum you mentioned Mumford and then then all then we had a number of other people who had variations on that and, and, and before that also Barlow was talking about it. You would expect that in the cortical circuit, right? It was very literally mapped to the anatomy. That in a, a people would point to certain layers in the in the cortex that would then deal with 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 the with, with the prediction and with the current state and how the error will be computed. So it's all very precisely mapped to cortical circuits, right? But even if you do your layer specific analysis, you don't necessarily see such a 
um, an asymmetry among the layers and their response. There seems to be a very gradual distribution of, of, of the signal that you get in your, in your task. In that case, it was more like an occlusion task, but I think it makes the same point, right? So, so in that sense, aren't you showing that actually what goes on in these circuits might reflect aspects of prediction, but it's not necessarily playing out in the way as anticipated in these more traditional models. Would you agree with that? Um, I'm totally um, experimental and not dogmatic, right? So I'm, I'm, I. These are interesting questions. I want to, I want to see how does, you know, traditional neuroscience um, looks at the stimulus response to a unpredicted ran random stimulus, and and of course in those experiments you can never see um, the capability of um, predicted sequences and so on. So you need to do the experiments in which, in which the stimulus history is predictive for a um, certain variation and and so on. And um, and I think uh, that's what we have done and and others and and whether this creates a. Um, I mean the the one point in which I deviate with with the uh, Rauer and Ballard model, if you like, is that. Um, what we what we see is that the predict the top down prediction is creating a signal in in where there is nothing right so predictive coding is a story in which you explain away as much data as possible but now we show that in the non stimulated region where there's no nothing to explain away uh, there's something created right there's a model there's a prediction a created and used energy to put their a hypothesis to then be tested. Um, so in, in this respect, it deviates. And um, and I mentioned um, Flores de Lange showing similar results for illusory contours. They are created. They are put into into a, a map. It's an active blackboard uh, framework in which you know the chalk is picked up and to to draw something on the active blackboard and say i you know it would make sense if there's something moving and it would make sense if there's some information missing at these and these points in a global sense that might be uh, very useful and minimize energy in this sense that um it you know be it prepares the, the organism to to respond to more or less surprising stimuli but um it's not all about uh, a quick explaining way of all all um, um, energy in, in in hierarchy as it was shown by Rauer and Ballard, mm -hmm. um, which is just you know a very simple simplified model to 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 illustrate um, some principles of predictive processing. Um, yeah. Then, so then combining with that. Also, when we you also mentioned much more detailed physiology that you did with Larcom and, mm -hmm. and other people inside the Human Brain Project, and also there, okay, you, you went over those results rather quickly, but still, at best they showed there is indeed interaction between higher and lower areas, but there was not necessarily a clean signature of anything we might want to interpret like uh, a strong prediction or an error or anything along these lines, right? It seems a more non-specific sensory processing that depends on the active dendrite. Yeah. So I mean, this is the, this is ongoing um, data that is recorded and and and, and still analyzed. Um, like, 
Well, I think in the classical V1 ice cube model and, 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 and following some some claims that, you know, um, uh, Jack, um, Jack Allen, Jack Allen uh, would, would say, you know, we, it's almost explained, you know, 80% of the variance is explained in V1. We, we have a very good idea of our models about V1 and that is true actually for for in certain um, restrictions so it is in those models in which you have a strain of, uh, of of surprising stimuli it doesn't explain ongoing activity baseline activity and and these kind of things which are a huge contributor to um, to to the energy level that is that is boiled off in 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 v1 volume um, so it's maybe all the, only the waves on top of that that are then explained. Now, in a classical receptive field V1 explanation model, you don't have um, the description of these um, feedback signals that I described. Another one that I haven't described uh, today, but we have done research is in blindfolded subjects when we play auditory scenes, you have some activity in, in V1 that is related to that is related to these auditory scenes. Um, so the, the 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 properties and the mechanisms in the in V1 are still you know having room for a negotiations of expectations and predictions in whatever kind of mechanisms. And and I think um, Christian Liefeld is doing a wonderful job in, in, in decoding also the level of interneuronal activity that contributes to the detection and the explaining away. Uh, and I think he has found a subtype of inhibitor neurons that is very strong in, ex in, in exactly um, uh, be, being... Um, silent during visual stimulation and being active during during um, um, in between stage so it's it could be a role of you know working hard to explain things away uh, that uh, we, we still f will find out you know mm -hmm. um, so there are many subunits that can still be um, contributing to this to this model and to this compartment of visual cortex that we think we we understand best maybe we want is thought to be one of those regions that are best studied and best understood. And yet there's there are like languages of feedback signals that we don't fully conceptualize. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned one of the results that you found was a, a different between uh, paranoid schizophrenic patients and controls on this apparent motion task. So what, what do you read from that in terms of support for your hypothesis about uh, top-down predictions and also what does it tell us about schizophrenia? So we, um, we we actually didn't find a difference between uh, schizophrenic subjects and controls in not in the dimension that we expected it in right. the predictability effect because we could confirm the predictability effect we saw overall a, a difference in the amount of a paramotion perception if you like uh, the uh, um, but so the the, the re responses to detection of a paramotion was 
was different in controls in schizophrenia. I mean, there's a general but result, isn't there, that, that um, schizophrenics are less susceptible to some visual illusions. Exactly, yeah, like the yeah. hollow face mask yeah. illusion, and, and, and the same is true for paramotion. Um, but it's but what we didn't find is that the effect that we see, the advantage of a flickering stimulus that is consistent within a paramotion context um, was uh, more or less in schizophrenic subjects than in control subjects. So the original idea was that um, it it could be that the um, signatures of creating a prediction error and the processing of a prediction error are altered in schizophrenic subjects. Um, they are less tuned to process the prediction error or higher tuned. Actually, they are both hypotheses. Um, but uh, we didn't find that, so we, we basically just replicated this. Mm. Now we are testing the same thing in autistic subjects. Uh, we're just starting to do that, same experiment. Um, and um, some have suggested that um, it should precisely be the difference between autistic subjects and schizophrenic subjects, in which you have this low-level difference in visual predictability that matters in autistic subjects, but not in schizophrenic. Um, so we will we will see that. But um, the prediction here would be that um, autistic um, pupils would be uh, less tuned in explaining away the predicted stimulus. It would be as unexplained, as surprising as the uh, unpredicted one. And. Um, well, it shows a tuning for predictability that is that is important and essential. And we could think of it in in the sense that if you um, if you experience lucid dreams, you you're, it's maybe a situation you're quite aware. You you know you you you're aware, you're conscious, but uh, you don't respond to prediction errors. Uh, you, the, the, the story, you don't wake up and realize you are in your bed, but uh, you continue to, your dream and knowing being in your bed and knowing to dream does not um, bring the dream to an end. And, and so that's, that's maybe a situation that, that comes very closely to, to a auditory hallucination in, in schizophrenic subject. It is, it is causing some prediction error. They are surprised, they are worried. But it's it's not resolved. It doesn't it doesn't make the internal um, representation go away or, or being replaced and overwritten by by an alternative. But now, in terms of the actual data, um, in the schizophrenics, if you would do the parent motion task, how big is the deflection you would see in their bolt response as compared to a healthy control? What is the exact difference? Uh, so, um, sorry for. Having been so brief, but in the in the talk, I only presented uh, behavioral results, and we haven't done functional brain imaging with them. It's just a behavioral observation that they are uh, not detecting the in-time stimulus as good as the. Uh, what would be your prediction, and with respect to what you would see if you would do fMRI on them? Yeah, ah, here yeah, that, that's that's a good one, right? In, in the autistic subjects, if we find behavioral um, no difference between the predicted and the non-predicted flash stimulus, 
we would like to do the fMRI experiment using layer-specific fMRI to see whether then we have a continuous low precision prediction in the superficial layer that doesn't discriminate and doesn't trigger an error signal uh, right. could be one one hypothesis so another one would be that a parallel motion is just is, is never creating any activity along the trace mm -hmm. so that the envelope is maybe processed feed forwardly but there's no feedback message right. so everything that comes in hits the uh, it's a clear slate. Mm -hmm. So now, since I'm on this crusade to sort of demolish the predictive model, um, another piece of the data that that feeds that uh, assault is is the data that you presented on the cerebellum, which is really interesting, right? Because when you when you opened up your analysis to go more whole brain and also look at how other structures would be involved in this, now suddenly the, the cerebellum started to also show activity. In this task, right? So um, now I could say, aha, you see, uh, apparently, this sort of clean isomorphic mapping of prediction hierarchies to cortex is insufficient to explain uh, the paradigm, to explain the, the behavioral effect, right? So, so how, how does uh, the results you, you get from the cerebellum not question this predictive hierarchy model that we started out with? So I'm, I, I had been a cortical chauvinist by, by accident, not by, by conviction. So I, I, we, we just started out scanning cortex because it didn't, and cerebellum didn't make it into our slab. We have changed that now. And I, I am at the, you know, I'm still on, on my learning curve to learn more about the cerebellum. How much I understand of it, or some of the hypotheses are, that um, it is a machinery that has an architecture to create a, a, a temporal forward model um, that is used in, uh, for example, in tracing behavior. So seeing, you know, tracing a curve, um, monkeys can follow this curve by um, um, smoothly, which is a uh, visual motor integration task, that by um, taking away the cerebellum, this movement becomes very jittered and and um, incoherent and so on. And, and there's a long line of, of, of different research, but so the, the, the cerebellum in a way is not directly connected to the outside world. It receives cortical input processes this and is the archetypical region for an efference copy processing which is basically a, a predictive machinery and so as I've heard in a recent talk um, if evolution came out with a perfect prediction machinery and um, is connected potentially to the entire brain what would you use that machinery for and um, so I think the you know the, the the conclusion is that lots of the forward model modeling that is necessary for uh, for survival is um, is done is offloaded or is done under participation with the cerebellum. So it's it is, if you like, our predictive machinery that communicates then with the different. 
um, sensory and motor output uh, areas. Now, what's also funny about that is with the, the, the cerebellar projections are mainly going to frontal parts of, of the cortex, hmm. most densely. So, um, so then to get that signal back into V1 would indeed take some cascade of recurrent projections. Right? Ah, I thought so that there are some, there, there, I think there are some direct connections to, to visuals. So there's some, some visual cerebellum connections. I'm not entirely sure if they go to V1 or to extra-stride areas and, and, and so on, but but I think there's there must be something like a visual subpart of cerebellum. Sure, but um, okay. So so um, the the last part of, of, of your talk um, went a little bit more in in the direction of um, of so a more computational understanding um, what this pro what what this whole system might be doing, right? So. Um, the, so the, the the bottom line would be cortex builds hierarchies of internal models that are that are coupled through uh, prediction errors, right? Um, and so if that's the starting that was the starting point, and has been a great heuristic for you to to perform some some really fantastic experiments that also led to to new insights. But the new insights might also then allow us to to reformulate the model, right? So so if you would have to sort of crystallize that, that current view? What would be your, your, your current summary of, of the model or the theory of, of neocortex? How should you think about neocortex given the data that you have in your hands? Um, I think that, of course, one of the big struggles is to find the right level of abstraction in, in answering your question in the description, right? Well, how many units do we need? What kind of abstraction is, is useful for what kind of understanding? We still don't, we, neuroscience is a data-rich um, science with relatively little theories. Um, at least that's what some of the criticism um, s says about neuroscience. So, um, well, and we haven't, th this is a question we haven't fully resolved. Which level of description do we need? Do we need um, spiking neurons explanation? Do, do we need principles? Is, and I think this predictive processing has some, um, some hypothesis, some, some units, which could be in single, single neurons or microcircuits, which is the description of prediction errors, for example, important currency, I think. Um, and also um, the the kind of um, population code of internal models. So some for more complex uh, human tasks, it is a, it is a extremely important to be able to simulate a uh, counterfactual situation, to plan behavior, to plan a um, interaction, or to plan a career. We can think about. I mean, there are many. Very fascinating. Um, explain, you know, how, how can how can you explain that a biological system uh, is capable of committing suicide? How how did evolution make it possible that you can you, you know you create an internal model um, that is somehow rewarding that you simulate and say that makes sense and then commit suicide, which in biology is is extremely um, um, unbiological, right? So um, there is um, 
only a few components that you need to be able to explain how internal models can create uh, a good description about external facts, right? So deep encoding works well in the visual system, for example, to now label visual scenes and learn the different objects by um, by coming up with a with a with a condensed description, but just by learning an incredible amount of visual stimuli and trying to um, to extract the the most essential features. So I think there are some of those com components that are sufficient to um, come up with very with, with a hierarchy of um, extracted features by using um, prediction error um, minimization. But I think what's unresolved so far, what I want to look into future, if that was your question, um, is the kind of how do you lift up this internal models that are totally that are then totally connected and well describing the environment to something that is alternative that you can d think plan alternative to the currently existing um, um, outside yeah, world. I was looking for an alternative okay. to the, the classical model uh, I don't really hear it yet but well, the, um, you mentioned the, the deep convolution neural nets a couple of times in your talk and just now. And, uh, you know, sort of Paul and I are both interested in putting uh, models of the brain into robots and getting to do tasks in real time. So, and I take from some of the things you're saying that maybe there's some useful mileage to be had in using these convolution neural mm. networks as an approximation to what uh, the visual pathways might be doing. But I mean, say we get that working uh, in some sort of first pass, what would be the things that we would be missing out on and what would we want to add to right. make this a more realistic model? So I think um, the flexibility, the adaptation to new environments is something that is um, a potential of expanding deep encoding neural networks that are feed-forward networks um, by expanding to recurrent looping um, might be able to um, to make them even more clever to let's say the um, context dependent amplification and deamplification is uh, something that could potentially, it, once we find the right architecture, make deep encoding networks more flexible to adapt to new environments. So this is, I mean, you're more the experts in this, and this, I'm, I'm sure this is something that's widely de de debated. Um, from our research, we just see the great difference between the big success story of deep encoding networks, convolutional networks, that um, are very similar to to the hierarchy in the visual system. However, they're both feed-forward, uh, so they're feed-forward processing um, architecture. Um, and the only thing that's fed back is the, um, the, 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 the error signal. But in a um, um, yeah, if we if we take our research serious and add a feedback cascading 
um, network to the feedforward, then what we get, for example, is a network that can fill in occluded images, which is one of the examples that we have used in our lab, in which um, we see that humans kind of um, have line drawings fitted in by their visual cortex and our deep encoding networks connected to an autoencoder, so a U-shaped network, is able to then um, make predictions about um, occluded objects or um, images that are currently not in sight. And so uh, that could be a, um, an architecture that is also, um, you know, that is a act, if you like, an active blackboard of predictions, what is happening when something disappears or over time and um, makes a world enriches, so to say, the environment in which the network is, is, is working. But wouldn't that imply that we, we would need a more, much more brand volume that our skull would be the size of a skippy ball? Because in, in, in that, for those models, if you want to bring in any kind of invariance, scale, rotation, position, you have to duplicate your wires, right? So you would run out of wires very quickly. So, so would it scale? Would that approach really scale, you think? I mean, on what we have done for the U-shaped network is just doubling the network, right? It's a um, so after the conversion, it diverges and has lateral connections and uh, to reconstruct the images, um, and that makes it to an you know an, if you like an active blackboard um, architecture. Um, Nico has done it in a in a slightly different way used object recognition task in a network that is either feed forward or has also lateral and feedback connections this blt network and could show that this kind of network architecture um, is better in recognizing uh, overlaid numbers cluttered scenes and so on and that architecture came from kind of joint discussions we had about you know the, the question how can we how would you add uh, what would feedback um, add to your feed forward networks how, how could it improve that how could we design experiments that challenge the current recognition system and so cluttered scenes and overlaps was one of those examples that he tried and um, I think uh, you know the, the AlexNet kind of architecture would had something like 88% correct or, or, or more uh, or 95% correct classification and then uh, his um, BLT um, bottom-up lateral and top-down network uh, was um, a few percentage better or, or part of percentage or something you know significantly so it's small but you need to find new new tasks and new challenges um, that those networks can play out in maybe their potential uh, because they're already in object recognition that seems to be a field where they are uh, ceiling now but um, so so coming back to the point you know it might be that they are now more flexible maybe there are advantages in in um, in training rates or something I don't know, I'm so the, not the expert the so that we need to add in the these sort of top-down cascades and we can get some improvement yeah and presumably some sharpening of the uh, representations in, in B1 and one I think one of the times you said in your talk you know 
usually think of B1 as the bottom of the hierarchy, but in a sense, it's it's much higher up because the information ascends and comes back down. So you're reconstructing this high resolution uh, version of the scene. But I mean, the um, you also talked uh, about how we can apply um, machine learning algorithms or support back to machines to read out from the brain to what the brain is actually seeing. So um, it seems to me that in some ways we're getting back to what really I was an old idea about the visual system that the brain sort of or the visual brain represents its best guess at what's in the world in some you know almost literal sense you know the old idea of the movie screen in the head which you know was you know so dismissed by everybody as as naive but but with these kind of approaches with this notion that you're getting this high resolution map which is tuned by your predictions that there is there in some sense something like a a representation in v1 of your best guess of the high resolution scene as as we know it um it's an interesting question right it's it's something it it, it does make sense it's intuitive and in another sense it it seems a bit um homunculus um it seems like the screen that yeah as you said you 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 can laugh about but you um, opened the door by talking about the line drawings, right? I did, I did. But this is totally empirically. <laughs> no, 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 you're stuck with it. I know. So I think, yes, we've won. Now it looks to us as if you um, um, you have kind of mental line drawings um, uh, put together in V1. And maybe that's, that is, is, is a bit the language of V1. And I mean, it's an incredible story, I think, if you look back, Peter... Um, Kavanagh, uh, mm. uh, Patrick Kavanagh talks about this uh, 10,000 years of uh, neuroscience by um, describing the, um, the, if you look at the line drawings in, in, cave, in caves, that is a form of communication that works. And that's surprising because um, line drawings work even though line drawings don't exist in the world, right? What we see is, is uh, or what's out there are textures and texture borders, but to from a texture border to come to a line drawing is an abstraction that seems to work incredibly good for our visual system. And since we were totally surprised that if we asked the subjects to fill in the missing information, they came up with the same line drawing. And maybe there's a clue because um, we find a communication that works. It's so proved. It's so error. Um, Prone, uh, proven. So, so, um, you know, if you you try to do an error, uh, a line drawing of an animal, and um, you're not happy with it, you optimize it until you're happy, and you think this is a good illustration of a of an um, deer or so, and then you present that to someone else, and the value, the quality, and the 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 goodness of fit to their internal model is so immediate because we have the same kind of visual system. And that opens up a communication. If we would open up this kind of communication with monkeys, you know, uh, if they could start drawing out their internal models, um, you know. This is interesting, right? This is speculation we could have had in the 60s by saying, oh, the language of V1 are, are contrast boundary uh, contours, right? So mm -hmm. in some sense, what's interesting about this, as opposed to having sort of complex predictive hierarchy, 
maybe indeed the whole the majority of machinery of vision just sits in v1 and what these higher areas are doing is basically if you want just in a very coarse way modulating this process in v1 so the whole hierarchy is now collapsing into mm. v1 essentially and all the rest does is say well let's ignore these bits right mm -hmm. or okay let's attend more to that part exactly. without telling it precisely what it should be seeing maybe that's sort of but the what mistake a, people make what right? about so another way the predictive model is therefore maybe not telling you exactly you should see this texture in this position it may be the prediction just tells you look there's something interesting there check it out right yeah Don't you buy that um yeah i mean there's like what are we also experts in this is face processing right so if you um you can you can face with ph or <laughs> oh face with no uh, the the emotion we can read out the emotion and the gender out of faces and we can see uh kinship relations and and all these kind of incredible tasks in in faces now if we imagine if you imagine the face uh, of persons that you know very well um you, your line drawings aren't very precise and 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 it's you it needs a lot of training to be good at that to to do the um, happy phase of um, your wife or um, you know. so from this but we see we have done an experiment in which we see that the um, encoding of emotions and gender discrimination makes differences in v1 so whether you have the task to recognize a gender or to recognize um, the, the emotional expression um, we mapped out retrotopic spaces around mouth and eyes but you can see a feedback signal in the other parts that are still having a signature, whether it is happy or fearful and so on. So this, I think, doesn't speak to a feedback signal that is very precise, let's say like a line drawing of a precise emotion of a face, but it's like a, um, a marker, that a, a, a token that says, here's a face, should be happy, should be, you know very well your daughter, and, um, and and that is a prediction. Now, that is a good template if then the um, stimulus comes up and there's a, a change in the facial expression, you have FFA and other, f the, the face network to work out the differences between your prediction and, 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 and the actual uh, input. But the token, the marking of where something is expected, um, is negotiated with higher and early visual areas. So I think the idea that I triggered of a cave drawing, in a way, uh, V1 is something like an active blackboard, which works like line drawings and tokens, maybe tokens adjusted to that, where you say, oh, bad animal, and here is a phase yeah, of something. Buy this token, this well, is how they protect it on V1. No, no, not the content, more like a, um, you know, we, we open up a channel that we speak to each other, so you need to be a channel of high spatial frequencies because you're now interested in the emotion around the mouth, and that is interesting in this part of V1. V1 um, doesn't know anything about those faces. The token but, is somewhere but, else. Yeah, the, the token is in the communication and okay, higher. I, no, no, I thought you put a token also inside V1, so that, that sounded confusing to me. That, like this, I get it, absolutely. Yeah. No, that makes sense because then we have very parsimonious linking, but then it's not necessarily f defined along this notion of hierarchies of forward models, right? It's a rather different kind of framework written in. 
Well, we're talking about the generative capacity of the brain now, and, and how that can, uh, you know, be a tool for thought. You know, whether you're a, yeah, whether imagination yeah. in dreaming, all of these processes where there's no visual input, uh, you can reconstruct activity throughout the visual hierarchy, and including in V1, if you want to think about the details of, say, a line drawing, you can imagine that, and that might require or involve activity in V1, which then sets off, you know, cascades of activity elsewhere in the brain. So it's, we don't have to invoke a homunculus to see why it's worth reconstructing uh, the visual scene at the V1 level. No, look, I, I appreciate that, that, that you're speaking up for Lars now. No, I'm not. <laughs> this, this is very much my own idea about what we might, no, but, 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 why, why V1 might operate in this way. Look, and that's, I agree with, this is not, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. My, my, my remark or criticism was a bit different. Like we started with a rather explicitly defined notion of prediction hierarchies, which are all sort of convergent to something like a Kelman filter. It's very explicitly defined and it really dictates to you what should happen in these cascades of interactions. And what I think we've seen at the end of the discussion, that there are cascades of interaction but they might not follow this very restricted view on hierarchies of predictive filters, mm -hmm. right? We might have to open up that perspective more, like how Lars now describes the idea of having a higher level area that is a very abstract token type representation of something, and it seeks information in preceding areas, is not necessarily following this idea of prediction hierarchies. Maybe it just looks for confirmation, just give a damn about errors, right? And that's how you can hallucinate things, because you don't care about errors. You just care about confirmation of whatever stuff you believe in higher areas. So that, that was more my challenge. And we, maybe the data, the discussion is leading us to the point where we should open up the perspective. It's, these are not just strictly defined prediction hierarchies. There's not enough data to support that. And maybe this, this model of token representations are, are maybe an alternative that, that, that is richer and maybe also closer to data. That, that was basically what I was, was saying. So, so are you happy with that, Tony? Or you think I'm, I'm sort of misconstruing discourse now? <laughs> well, I think you're pushing which I happily it, do most of the time. You're, you're very much pushing it in a certain direction, which I don't think Lars was necessarily But he was nodding with. his head. Maybe, maybe he's just tired. Yeah, I yeah. think that's probably the case. He has a plane to catch. <laughs> yeah, right. you've, you've drowned him down. Good. Good. You see? Endurance, endurance wins the day again. So Lars, now before before you can escape, yeah, there's one two last hurdles you have to take. The first one is though, this is not easy territory. Uh, it's it's really involved uh, experimental methods. It links to theory. Uh, it's very precise. It's hard work, right? This stuff doesn't come for free. So I'm sure you you have plenty of scars being in this domain. So if we would like to to follow your route to try to understand the brain, what is Lars' law? What is Lars' law that we should follow to, to understand the brain? <laughs> um, okay, so of course there is a, a kind of learning of the tools that we try to sharpen and to get better to explore so what we bring to the table and what every neuroscience labs brings to the table or di diff different you know background is um expertise with the tools and um making them sharper being able to to explore more and more um 
cutting edge. For example, we do the ultra high resolution to layer specific fMRI um, and using these uh, techniques of um, brain reading for non-stimulated areas. This is something that we learned over time that is possible and it's it, there's a lot of methodological kind of question. Now, once you have this kind of tool set that you think is very good in to explore with vector topic mapping and individual subject analysis and all of this, um, then it's important to um, find relevant questions and um, explain them in such terminology that your corner field becomes bigger and wider and you find more and more overlap with other uh, with other um, labs and um, uh, well, houses of law we, we have and to be able to put it on a I don't know what you mean by law I, I kind of understood what's my effect, method the law of effect <laughs> right for instance what, what, or the what, law of how to do science. In, the, yeah. you how, I'm, I'm talking more about how, how to do how to do science. I think right. um, there, there's there's a lot that we start to learn by uh, doing um, multidisciplinary, multi-scale, multi-method science, which is a very difficult thing to do because everyone is is leaving a little bit of their comfort zone and a little bit of terminology. Um, that is very well and precisely defined to open up to other fields in which uh, different terminology is applied and different problems. But um, by uh, leaving a little bit this comfort zone, the more we do that, the more we find overlap, the bigger questions we can tackle. It's something that certainly we have all experienced in the Human Brain Project, where we come together and start discussing our different approaches at which um, you see incredible work but it is when the incredible works of different labs come together and find common language that you trigger enormous amount of synergy and and that's something that's um, that's very hard work and it's very difficult and not so comfortable and it's something very very important in science i mean i'm sometimes surprised when you for whatever reason, step outside of your field and and experience some other science, be it during a review process, during a conference, or so. Usually, a conference you wouldn't usually go to, and and you realize how fragmented science is. And um, so, it is important to converge to find bigger stories, to to not fight only the corner, the to sharpen your methods but also to step outside and get the bigger picture, how it converges and how it fits together. And there's a lot of synergy for many parts of science where I find it extremely exciting. Mm -hmm. It was a bit, a bit in, the, in the trend of Ortega Gazette, right? Who spoke of counteracting the barbarism of specialization. So somebody also saying, look, don't get sucked into the specialization, keep an open mind, right? Look at the other surrounding domains. Yes, that that's part of it. I also I'm also you know a fan of using your your methods very precisely. I think in brain imaging has been a bit um, uh, um, scarred by um, by by rapid exploitation of stories and and sometimes it has a bit bad image. People you know have seen and believed images because they were on the brain and they looked so scientifically and the stories connected to those. Um, 
um, were not always linked to very hard and precise science. And so I think it's very important to gain back some trust there. And, you know, I, th I think we, we push the limits in, in, in this a lot in our lab. It's a lot of work. And I, I, I think others are doing this in their field as well. But then there's a lot of reward by opening up a little bit and uh, seeing these discussions over over dinner and lunchtime when everyone is uh, suddenly st starting to discuss, discuss other things outside of their scientific expertise. Um, there's a lot of, as I said, synergy and new ideas and converging ideas, I think. Right. Especially now we know that fMRI might reflect activity of astrocytes instead of neurons. <laughs> 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 but then the last question is, uh, you know, the last time that Tony bought me a beer, or paid for a beer, is <laughs> a long time ago. And, and th this has to do with the fact that he lived actually in Edinburgh for a long time. <laughs> so you have been virtually neighbors, right? You being in Glasgow. So, Not sure we overlap. <laughs> but for that reason, Tony will come visit you in four years in Glasgow, assuming you're still there, and I'm sure you will be doing great work. And he's going to just come with a notebook to check whether you have confirmed or falsified a specific hypothesis that you're going to share with us today. So what's the hypothesis, the most critical hypothesis on, in your research program that you want to see tested in this four year time frame? From, from now on in four years, what yes. I want to see tested. Yes, we're not going to have a shifting time window from now, four years. I'm not going to give away my best ideas. <laughs> <laughs> you have to tell your prediction. Okay. Um, what will happen in my field or in other fields? I think we will see a lot of of. Um, no, he's coming to your lab to check a specific prediction. Oh, Tony is going to. So come, you're going to say. And you will come as well, and, and you will see that you you get. And again, no beer. You, I probably you, I'll buy you get more than a beer. Yeah. We are we are very generous in, in, in Glasgow. We don't like <laughs> Edinburgh. Hypothesis <laughs> to test, right? We're not as stingy. It's advertised. No, no. <laughs> so what's you, the hypothesis? You're up for a prediction error there. Exactly. Um, no, I I'm, I don't have a good prediction in, in this. I mean, one one uh, what I'm most intrigued. I think uh, maybe four years is not going to be enough. But I uh, I, I want to I want to see these the double coding of uh, internal models that are about current situations. The they are predictive about the scene and. Um, the mental models about something else being simultaneously processed in our brains, which we know, and we know in which areas, more or less, but we don't know how these codes coexist without interfering with one another. Mm -hmm. Now, having layer um, resolution fMRI, I believe we might be able to find different codes simultaneously in these different areas, in the different layers, and I have to disagree with the remark that you made earlier that the differences in the layers, they, they, they aren't differences in the layers. I think w w they are. No, no, I said that it's more gradual. There's more a gradual, gradual shift. Yeah. It's not as discrete as these models would yeah. have so suggested. We have some new data in which we, we have um, visual illusions that are explained away, like motion-induced blindness, which you see a different code is still there, but it's not conscious. So, so there's more to come from this. But... The, the double coding of mental imagery and visual predictions, I think, is something that I'm, I'm interested in. It must come at some level, we, we, and we might find some ways in which we can um, see these double codes, some for the internal models that are currently 
happening and then other ones that are counterfactual. And it's something that maybe human fMRI or human research is particularly well tuned to because these kind of experiments are relatively difficult to do uh, in animals. You would need to instruct them to do a visual process and simultaneously do a mental um, uh, imagery task. It's not totally impossible, but, but that's something I think um, I want to have more knowledge about how do you have these two two codes simultaneously. Right. There'll be a long discussion over a lot of beers. Lars <laughs> Mookley, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It was a pleasure. <laughs> the CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.